1: No mai, mai kita Welcome to Country Life, I'm Sally Round.
2: Great to have your company, I'm Duncan Smith. Today we head to an old church where time has stood still.
1: And we check in on the festive spirit in Taranaki where rural creativity comes to life.
2: And later on, is the traditional milkman making a comeback? We meet a farmer who's pasteurising and bottling his A2 milk and doing home delivery.
1: But first to our final look for the year at conditions on farms and orchards around the country. Grass growth in Northland is still romping along. The region hasn't had rain for a week after non-stop wet. Our contact says you'd have to be doing something wrong not to have grass at the moment. He was at the sale yards when we called and reported pleasing prices for heifers, steers and bulls. The Pukekohe district is rapidly drying out thanks to regular westerlies. Irrigation is now in full swing on various crops. Growers are seeing an increase in thrips because of the warmer weather, but disease control is not a problem. Other crops like watermelon are growing well and potato crops are producing good yields at harvest. Compared with last year, the last four months have seen as much as 20% less rainfall.
2: Waikato is in a good place. Drizzly rain earlier in the week mixed with warmer weather has caused the grass to go crazy. It means there's now enough grass to cut for silage again. Our contact says it's the best spring he's ever had. His chicory crops are coming through and he's about to put the first mob in the paddock. Father Christmas also found time to stop in for a visit at the local club and there was a big turnout of rural children there to say hello. Wind in May of Plenty last week has caused some damage to gold kiwi fruit. Proximity marks have appeared, which happens when fruit bang together and produce a dark spot. It's something you might see later in the season, and growers are hopeful the marks won't be noticeable as the fruit grows bigger. Advice came out last week to start irrigating as soil moisture is getting low.
1: December has been not too bad in King Country. Plenty of rain to keep the grass growing and bucket loads of sunshine are helping the lambs to thrive. Yew's stock condition is not good, thanks to a poor spring, but cattle condition is better. A little bit more rain to keep things going would be the icing on the cake. Our contact is shutting the front gate and heading off farm for the first time in seven years this Christmas. First thing on the agenda is a swim paired with a beer and some fish and chips. Everything's still looking reasonable and green in Taranaki. Here too, the wind has proved an issue as any rain that falls is sucked out. It's also knocked the maize around a little bit. Thankfully, the rain that has managed to seep into the ground has brought the crop back. There's also plenty of sun. A farmer got burnt for the first time this year. A good reminder to put that sunscreen on.
2: Nice warm days in Ti have paddocks looking a lot better than they were a month ago. Lamb weights are well behind where they would normally be due to lack of sunshine in spring. Cropping farmers have also had a challenging couple of weeks without enough sunshine and too much rain as drowned maize crops. It's had to be replanted two or three times. However, feed levels are good so even if the dry does kick in, most farmers should be okay. Stock are really happy in Hawke's Bay. There's plenty of grass around thanks to awesome growth through November farmers have been able to make plenty of store feed which is good as our contact says no one has any money to see them through a drought the start of the month saw some rain and the heat is just starting to come out now it's given crops a great start and they're looking a lot better than last year there's the feeling now that farmers are ready for whatever the season throws at them
1: December started under average in Wairarapa. However, the last few days, the sun has shone here too. It's a viticulturist's dream. And after all the ups and downs of the last three years, a wine grower says it finally feels like something's going right. Flowering's just finished on the vines and the early signs are promising. Sheep and beef farmers are still positive, with grass growth and lambs coming right after a tough start to the season. Waipunamu to the South Island now, and Nelson is drying down slowly. No substantial rain through December and winds, though humid, have meant even the underground water levels in the whole of the region are very low for this time of year. A preliminary meeting of the Dry Weather Task Force was held to try and manage water use across the district. Two areas are already on restrictions. It's been the driest spring for quite some time. Grass is burning off and those making hay aren't seeing the grass come back unless they irrigate. Apples and pears are coming along with reasonable crops. And stone fruit's being picked now, but unfortunately for consumers, prices are up as there's less fruit about.
2: It's been a pretty good December on the west coast. There was enough fine weather when needed to take off silage and get crops in the ground. Growth has been phenomenal, so much so it's been impossible to manage. Mating has also gone fairly well. Our contact says farmers are happy, and it couldn't have worked out better for the many farmers that had gone back to basics, cutting nitrogen and other expenses to keep costs down. Canterbury has had a mixed bag of weather, however it does feel like it has finally settled down with the current temperature sitting just over 30 degrees. Farmer optimism is not great with high input prices and interest rates and low prices for their products. There's a twinkle of hope with the new government, but change will take a while to flow through. It's a busy time on farm with baleage being made and crops being sprayed. Last week a significant hailstorm rolled through the upper plains and our contact had severe damage to spinach, hybrid radish, barley and fodder beet crops all in the space of two or three minutes disappointing after all the work that has gone into them
1: in the space of three weeks in otago the fire risk has heightened sharply the region hasn't had substantial rainfall for a month and the ground could do with some moisture irrigation is holding things and it's had to start earlier than usual there looks to be a medium-sized yield on the grapes and early season cherries are tasting delicious although the yield was low so heed the advice to grab them before they're gone Southland has had a pretty good spell. Farmers are still getting good rain, but things are certainly starting to dry off. Cows have dropped off their peak milk, most likely due to mating. Results were looking good in the first six weeks, but it always looks good before scanning. So hopefully the good results remain. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101FM. To
2: Taranaki, where reindeer are flying over paddocks and Santa has been seen surfing. No bull. The region's farmers have been getting into the festive spirit thanks to a farm art competition run by the Taranaki Catchment Communities Group. Lead coordinator Nicola Bryant talked to our producer Leah Tebbett ahead of the judging this week and gave us a sneak peek at some of the entries.
3: The art competition had started, through, uh, this is our third year running, the first year was when all the Christmas parades were getting cancelled and we were just like, how can we bring... Cheer into the rural communities, and you know we, we're missing going to see these parades, and that, so how can we do it? else and every—it's just been such a success, and every year people ask us, "Are we running it again?" So, just yeah, everyone is just so like really enjoys seeing this stuff, and you know I know when I drive in the car with my kids, yeah, we're looking to see what's out there, like so it does bring a lot of cheer, and brightens up the <laughs> countryside a bit. Yeah, and. What sort of things are people doing?
1: Could you give us a little sneak peek at what some of the concepts are?
3: We have some really creative ones with farm waste. People using filter socks and silage wrap and stuff, chopped up wood. And so people are, because we do have a most sustainable price, so people are trying to be really aware of what they're using. We've kept our theme quite broad because we don't want people to just necessarily have just a Christmas theme. So we've gone with that summer theme or Christmas theme so that people can, yeah, you're not limited to What you're entering. I have seen a sneak peek of cow on a quad bike. I'm down (laughs) to silage bales, so um, that was pretty impressive. And um, I must say, like he's even the the cow's got a helmet on, and definitely looked at the health and safety side of the quad bike. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's it's really neat to see. Some people have just done tires with um, Christmas lights around. Um, it's, It's really. It's just we just want everyone to be able to enter regardless of their artistic skills.
1: There's also some um, Taranaki businesses that have jumped on board to offer prizes for for those that have entered, is that right?
3: Yes, that's correct. Um, We have some really great sponsors that have hopped straight behind them and we've said that we're doing it again. They've put their hands up to sponsor prizes, so our biggest prize is half a tonne of fertiliser from Ravensdown. And then we've got Beef and Lamb New Zealand, Dairy Women's Network, FMG, Rural Support, Taranaki, Dairy NZ, LRC, BDO and Farm Source Fonteras, um, all sponsoring prizes. So it's really great to have the support. And it's also good to get that interaction with the urban side of you get people coming from towns to drive around the countryside to look at the entries once we put the dresses up, so it is. It's really it ticks a lot of boxes um, with things, so I'm really glad we can do this as Taranaki catchment communities.
1: Mm. So sorry, do you put the addresses up of, of the entries so people can? go yeah, and...
3: So when I do post the on our Facebook page, I'll post all the entries and some people do like to go and drive and see all the entries because most of them are on the on the roadside.
1: Have you heard from the farmers that have entered already or, or people that have entered already about what it means to them to get involved?
3: I think they all just really love it and we have the same farmers that have there's a few that have entered every year now but we have had a few new entries this year and there's one that it's two little elves trying to slow down the traffic like a speed camera, <laughs> slow down the traffic and they said it's actually quite nice to see like people are slowing down to have a look so it's doing two purposes but they just love the Christmas spirits and getting in behind it and yeah I think everyone just wants to see people happy like I know I've seen people drive past and uh hoot the horn as they drive past so I guess the farmers will be hearing that too so Mm -hmm. yeah so it's just it's just and I think it's really nice to see and yeah I know every year we have farmers that are excited and they tell me what they're going to be creating (laughs) and so yeah so it's it's great to see when they come in what they've turned out to be so no it's, it's really nice
2: Nicola Bryant there of Taranaki Catchment Communities. And to see some of the entries and find out who won, head to the Country Life webpage at rnz.co.nz forward slash country life.
1: Now I don't know what you think, but Christmas seems to come around very quickly these days. But for the retired school teacher at the heart of our next story, the passing of time is not something to worry about. In fact, for him, it's a real passion.
0: I'm Bill Williams. I own a museum called Colleges Clocks. I've been collecting clocks for well, 28, 30 years, and uh, I have currently 3,822 clocks. I'm known, uh, so people ring up and say, I've got a clock here, would you like it? Uh, and how and far I will say, you go to get them? Timbuktu.
1: Now, you're dangling a key there. Is that the key to the museum?
0: That's the key to the museum indeed, yes.
1: Shall we go and have a look?
0: We'll go, indeed. This way. As you see, I've got um, nearly 14 acres here. It's quite a lovely rural existence. We're just
1: on the edge of the small town of Colleton in the Manawatu, aren't we?
0: Yes. well, it's not a town; it's a village. A village, yes. This here that you can see uh, ahead—that's my museum. It's a church built in 1876.
1: And was it? Has it always been here?
0: No, it was in Palmerston.
1: And what's that? It says Tardis over there.
0: <laughs> that's my portal. <laughs> Do you know what Tardis means? Yeah, it's but what, what, does it, what does the word Tardis mean?
1: No, I don't know.
0: Time and relative dimensions in space.
1: <laughs> Shall we go on in? Yep.
0: Just, I'll just push the door back.
1: There we go. Loops off.
0: Nice and in we go. You.
1: Oh, and <laughs> even one. before we've set our foot in the door, there's <coughs> clocks to sort of almost climb over. Look
0: at this. this is a wonderful thing. I bought this uh, box three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and it's going up on the museum, on the front of the museum. They they range in age from early 1700s, that one there with the long pendulum, mm-hmm. that's about 1718, and then the, more, the most modern ones would be around, around about 1980. Nowadays, anything more than 1980 will be a battery clock and i don't i don't collect battery clocks
1: so these are mm. traditional these wind are up clocks
0: mechanical clocks that are either wind up or weight driven
1: now mm. what is your favorite clock
0: right well the favorite clock in this room is this
1: one don't tell me you've got more rooms bill oh yes
0: <laughs> so that's my favorite it's about 1920s that's american
1: Looks like it was a clock on a station wall or something. It with, looks it's like it's enormous. It, but it,
0: it's actually not. A, it's not a wall clock that's been adapted. It was actually made like this.
1: So it's actually a small table. Yes, with the clock face as yes. the, the tabletop.
0: Uh, and you see, it's on. It's on casters. It's on a, a little octagonal cabinet.
1: Beautifully made.
0: Beautifully made, yes, it's, a, and it's say, even 1920s. Got a little,
1: little cupboard underneath, little yes, doors. What yes. are in there? I'm having a look. I
0: don't know what was what uh, was originally in there. It might have been a wine cabinet or something. It would have stood in the middle of a probably of a large parlour. I got it from a guy who bought it from a, an estate. And he showed it to me, and I said, ''Oh, it's lovely. How much do you pay for it?'' And he said, ''200.'' I said, ''You stole it. It's worth 2,000.'' About three months later, knock on the door, guy came on, so he said, ''Do you want this clock?'' And bear in mind, I said, ''It was worth 2,000.'' So I said, ''Well, how much do you want for it?'' He said, ''Give me 250, and it's yours.''
1: Now, what's the strangest clock you have here?
0: This one here is a particular little favourite of mine. A little dog kick, um, cocking his leg on the lamppost.
1: And the lamppost has a clock on top? Yes. Does it still go? Yes. Do all your clocks still go?
0: They... When I put them in here, I only put them in if they are going. So if they're not going, they go into my spares and repairs room or whatever... But at most of them now will probably need a good oil. That's and probably
1: all. a good wind-up.
0: And wind-up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to, when I, when I was open on Saturday mornings only, I used to come in here on Saturday morning and wind 50 up in this room, 50 up in the next room, a different 50 every week.
1: That would have taken a while.
0: And It would have taken a while, and, and I've I got a bit tired of it.
1: <laughs> so you've just let them let them go? Yes. And they've all got different times now on their faces?
0: They have. Well, when I wind them up, I never put them to time anyway, so they're, they're all showing different times.
1: Because it driving you nuts, if so you had to listen to all that always, chiming all at once. Yes,
0: but there's, and there's always a, 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 a bing-bong, bing-bong, or goo goo going off whenever people come in. So it's quite good.
1: Are these clocks... All collected within New Zealand?
0: Oh, um, I've bought, oh, I should say probably about 50 when we've been on holiday overseas. But the vast majority, all the others, have been bought somewhere in New Zealand. The most represented country would be England, followed by Germany, then possibly USA, then France, then every single country that's ever produced clocks.
1: Who are the best clockmakers? Are they the Swiss?
0: No, because they don't make many clocks. The Swiss are mainly watches. Germany produced the best clocks. France produced the most expensive ones. Did you recognise the time?
1: I think everyone will know
0: that one. Yes. <laughs> Frere Jacques. I, uh, I, when I bought the clock, I had no idea that it played the Frere Jacques. I thought, I'll just buy it, put it in my spares and repairs room um, for if I want to take spares out of it. And I thought, oh, I'll just wind it up and listen to it. And it went, oh. It's the only one in the whole room that plays the Frere Jacca. So I rushed down to the place where I'd bought it in Carousel and gave them an extra 50 bucks.
1: Houses in days gone by would always have a clock that chimed in the hall.
0: Yes, it's a thing of the past.
1: And, and what do you think it brings to a home, that sound, that chime? Oh,
0: it, it, uh, it, it makes a home, it makes it more homely makes it more, it's not a house anymore, it's a home. Up to the 1960s, the clock was a part of the furniture of the house. From 1960 up to about 1980, 85, then a clock was just simply something to tell the time. But after about, after about 1985 or mid-80s or whatever, then it, it ceased to be even that um, because a lot of houses nowadays don't have a clock. No.
1: And we use our phones, don't we?
0: Yes, well, that's right. Um, our very few people under 30 have a watch.
1: Do you have younger people coming into your museum and thinking, what on earth is going <laughs> on here?
0: Oh, yes, I, I love every, every year the teacher from the local school brings her first years down. They do a unit on time, and so when they do the unit on time, she brings them to my museum. Oh, and it's wonderful, wonderful. It's usually about fifteen of them. And, um, and what questions
1: do they ask?
0: Oh, uh, how does this work? And how many batteries do you go go through? I, said, I don't go through batteries. Oh, they, they they find it very very difficult to understand that.
1: What is the worst sounding clock you've got?
0: Um must be probably one of the american clocks because the american clocks although they're they're quite good clocks and they're quite reliable they've got a terrible gong they they don't chime on chime bars like the europeans do like that one that we just heard they 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 chime on a a coiled gong and it's harsh it's
1: bang that sounds
0: like a house of horrors. My, I remember my sister-in-law, when she, whenever she came up, we used to have to take all the clocks out of the house, out of the room where she was, because she couldn't stand the, the sound of even the ticking.
1: Well, if you had a 100 clocks on the wall, that was a bit unfair, Bill. <laughs>
0: It's getting more and more difficult to find the clocks, mainly because I've got most of them, (laughs) Uh, but also because uh, clocks are not really part of young people's life anymore, and so they wouldn't dream of buying one. Most of the clocks that I've bought are, are from older people or from estates.
1: What got you into clock collecting? In
0: 1988, I went to Auckland and saw a clock in the window of a second-hand shop. I thought, gee, that would look nice on the mantelpiece at home. I bought it, took it home, opened the back to look at it, and here I am, 3,821 clocks later.
1: It became a real fascination for you. It
0: did, yes. Yes.
1: What, what was it that actually got you? I don't. Completely I, th- I think it was.
0: I think it was the, the fact that it was a pendulum clock. Uh, this one that I, I got, and the pen, the movement really intrigued me. There are two separate parts to a clock. There's a the part that makes it go, and then the part that makes it chime or strike. And I really got hooked on both. Oh, by the way. That one, that clock over there, the ball, hanging ball... Yes, I called, can't even
1: see a clock face. Yes,
0: it's called the Francis Drake Falling Ball Clock. It was put out to commemorate Drake's round-the-world voyage in 1577. To wind it up, you push the ball right up to the top and it drops down to the bottom over a period of eight days and the the collar in the middle goes round from right to left... And indicates the time on the arrow. They were made in 1977. Anyway, here up to here. My favourite clock of the whole lot is in here.
1: And we've entered another room just brimming with them.
0: This little fellow is my favourite. <laughs> I call him Fritz. He was made in 1920 and carved out of a single piece of mahogany. Uh, the right eye tells you the hour. The left eye tells you the minutes, and it goes round like this.
1: Uh, the eyeball is moving. The
0: eyeball's moving, and you see the eyeball's got a got a line in the eyeball. Yes, and that tells you the time. <laughs> this is a little
1: uh, a little dog, and we're talking about the eyes of the dog, which tell yes. the time. You've also got some quite retro-looking clocks yes. up there on the wall, the 70s vibe 70s, from, yes. on that one.
0: You see you see the one with the orange face? Mm. See, when Kathy saw it, she said,
1: Oh, get rid of it, get rid of it!
0: So we got rid of it.
1: Do you find a lot of stuff comes in here because Kathy wants to get rid of it? Yes. And you've got some rather grand-looking grandfather oh, clocks.
0: Oh, yes. Now, what about that one there? That is my pride and joy... That's all made out of matchsticks. Yes. It's got matchsticks glued on hardboard in the door, but if you look inside, there's no hardboard there. It's all a double layer of matches.
1: That's incredible. When was that made?
0: In the 1940s, 50s, and it was made by a prisoner in Christchurch Jail.
1: That would have whiled away a few hours.
0: A few hours indeed. Apparently, he was a lifer, so he had plenty of time on his hands. <laughs> oh, look at those. This one is the most expensive clock in the whole um, collection. Describe it for us. It's, it's called a garniture set, and the matching, the matching vases on the side of the, uh, of the clock are called the garlicers. so the whole thing is a garlic set. Is a And garniture is a French word that simply means sight piece. And the reason that that is so valuable uh, is because the decoration was done, was hand-painted by a famous painter called Stinton, Harry Stinton, um, who hand-painted it and signed it. And because of that, it's worth megabucks.
1: wow this is in- absolutely incredible. I'm blown away by your collection Bill. It's, it's, it's just a real, it's a life's work isn't it?
0: Oh it is, yes. Uh, um... Do you take
1: a lot of joy coming in here or do you think, oh, oh I must I clean don't. those cobwebs off?
0: No, no, I, uh, I don't <laughs> see the cobwebs.
1: <laughs> You're running out of space here Bill. Oh, I've Are run. Are you going to keep on collecting?
0: Yeah, so
1: <laughs> You can't help yourself?
0: I keep telling my wife I'll stop. I'll stop when I get to... I, I remember telling you, when I um, when I first got married, I said, I'll stop when I get to 100. And she thought, I meant 100
4: o'clock.
1: <laughs> what are you going to do with this collection when Bill is no longer?
0: Well, I don't know. But it, I mean, it's immaterial anyway, because I've decided I'm going to live forever.
1: Time is not an issue for you. No! <laughs> Chimes at Bill Williams' Colleton Clocks Museum in Manawatu. Now, Bill also has a wonderful Christmas lights display at his place and he starts decorating in October and people come from all over to take a peek at the drive, lined with reindeer and the trees hung with shiny baubles. Bill's Clock Museum is open at the weekends or by appointment and he told me he'd love to show you round.
3: Hi, it's Jess here from Dreamview Creamery. We sell milk in reusable glass bottles. You're listening to Country Life, RNZ National.
2: Now we're heading to a farm at Springston in Canterbury. Cosmo Kentish Barnes is there with a young farmer and entrepreneur who's delivering milk to people's doors, just like his grandfather did.
5: My name's Alex Irvine, and we're on the original farm that my parents bought in 1984.
4: We are standing beside your pasteurising factory now and your bottling plant.
5: Yeah, so so we process uh, and, and bottle pasteurised A2 milk. It goes in glass bottles, so we get the empty bottles back from the customers and then sterilise them, uh, refill them, get them back out to the customers again. Yes,
4: so before you started bottling milk, uh, were you working on the family farm?
5: Yes, yeah, so I, was, I was at university, so I, I did university, did, did my bachelor's of Commerce there. And then in between university, yeah, I was, I was on the farm and, yeah, sort of filling in where need be.
4: Yes, because the Irvine family have four farms, don't they, around here? Four farms, yes, yep. Three in Sprinkston and one in Leaston. And you process the A2 milk that comes off, what, one of the farms?
5: Yeah, yeah, so it, it comes off the main farm that Dad originally purchased. So we sort of thought that would be the most appropriate farm to to turn in, to make make the whole thing go yes. full circle. So is it a 100% um, A2 herd? Yeah, 100% A2 herd, yeah. The other three dairy farms have got A2 cows in them, but we just filtered all of the A1 protein cows out and put them at the other farms so we could have this 100% A2. For people who aren't um, familiar with A2 milk, what are its main benefits? The way I, I describe it is... We break it down a lot slower in in, in our digestive system. So A1 protein is, if you'd imagine a bunch of little dots and then your enzymes have to immediately try to break those down in your digestive system is A2 protein is, is more like a solid bar, and, and we sort of our stomachs sort of slowly chip away at breaking it down, so it's a lot easier on our stomachs. Mm. There's a real value add there, I guess, in terms of sales. Yeah, well, it's just a, it's another point of difference. You know, we've we've got the environmental side that we look at, uh, the A2 protein side, and the the glass bottle, the sustainable side. So, there's a few different points of difference there with our milk. Yeah. So, did you start this whole venture on your own? Yeah, I did. I had. I had some savings, I used to rear up bull calves when I was younger and rear them up to 100kgs and sell them and then have my little set of savings and I was was sort of at the point where I either had enough money to buy a house and have a deposit for a house or or start a business and I suppose following in my my parents' footsteps I sort of was that way inclined so yeah, I dropped all my money on that and I just bought a little bottling plant and a little pasteuriser as sort of a proof of concept and um, had that for about a year then thought let's do it and then got right into it. Did you see there was a gap in the market? Yeah, I did. I I, I sort of saw a few people around the country doing it, and I sort of thought, hey, look, this is this is probably something to look into. I probably thought about it for about a year, to be honest. And in line with this business, there's a lot of compliance, and you know, with that sort of thing, where do you start? So I got on the blower to to a few friends and got in touch with with a guy Rod Finch. Um, He's he's my MPI advisor and he's helped me out a lot throughout, throughout the whole process and, and getting it to the market. Yes, so you
4: presented the idea to your parents and they agreed to supply the A2 Milk. Yeah, well,
5: originally actually I I, I sort of wanted to, to, to sort of start it on my own accord, you know. I've, I've always been someone that wants to start my own legacy and create my own legacy but, but carry on my parents at, at the same time and so initially I actually bought milk off Grow Farms which was Mark Williams Aylesbury Creamery down in Burnham. Oh, so
4: you weren't using yeah. the milk from your farm, your no. family farm?
5: No, 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 not not originally. No, for the first six months to a year probably I was I was buying off them and then then it was like cool well, yep, now we can justify changing a whole herd into A two and so yep, did the agreement and mum and dad were happy with everything so yep. How old
4: were you when you started the business in two thousand and nineteen? Uh
5: 24, 20, 23 going
4: on 24, yeah. Oh, wow, so you've taken on board
5: a lot at quite a young age? Yeah, it's been good. I suppose I've been instilled some, some good work ethics, you know, as a, as a kid. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've been driving since I was about 11, which <laughs> on the farm, and you know, um, no, mum and dad have taught me a good work ethic, and you know, you need to get out there and, and money doesn't come free, and, and that's, that's something I've, you know, respect a lot from them that, you know, I haven't been handed it the value of money is important to, to teach your children and they've done a great job I feel anyway <laughs> so at the start were you doing everything the milking the
4: pasteurizing the bottling the delivery
5: yeah I'd sort of I'd, I'd probably be milking maybe once a week but that would only be if we had sickness on the farm but yeah I was I was doing the pasteurizing the bottle washing the filling the deliveries right through I was I was doing some some pretty big hours and yeah it was it was a big year and my current relationship at the time, it was uh, it was it was pretty tough on them. <laughs> and at that time, you were even delivering milk all the way up to Nelson. Drive to Nelson, drop drop the milk there, turn around, come straight back, and then do it all again. And then yeah. as well as supplying people yeah. in Christchurch. As well as supplying Christchurch, obviously I had um, had my staff there. But yeah, when the Nelson side of it started, that was that was very early days, and I'd, I think I only had one or two staff members. So running around trying to do everything was was pretty hectic as, as well as for an interview staff to to fill the demand that we we had so yes yeah how many people do you have working here uh, so there's three staff in there currently one person will be doing the bottle washing they'll be in the bottle washing machine there's one person doing the capping side of it at the end of the bottle filler and then there's one person packing off and also doing quality checks on the on the caps do you employ anyone else I've got one driver who does the commercial side of it, and then we have JD and Nisha who run the home delivery side of it. So there's a fair bit of juggling, a fair bit of, a fair bit of logistics going on there. But I did read that you won a big
4: contract to supply the University of Canterbury with all their milk.
5: Yeah, we did. We did. We were very happy with that. We, we were actually up against Sinlay for that. But um, ultimately the sustainability side of it pulled it through for us and we're obviously highly focused on that, so that's what got us there. But, yeah, we're very lucky to have them. We've got other places like the Convention Centre and the Littleton Port, places like that. They go through a lot of volume and, yeah, they're great customers to deal with.
4: Even though you were brought up on the farm and have a farming background, your commerce and marketing degree must have really helped you realise your vision
5: yeah, I suppose one thing that I'm quite big on is problem-solving. I probably learned that from my father, because my father's a A-grade mechanic by trade actually, before he, he went into dairy farming. Oh,
4: that's handy on the farm. It is, it is.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a lot of mechanics bills. but yeah, no, so, that, so that's something that, you know, I, I love the whole process engineering side of it and, and problem-solving. Yeah. Yes,
4: we are going to go out onto the farm later on to meet some of your cows, but first, Let's go into the factory and see what's happening because it sounds like the bottles are being cleaned.
5: They are. They are. They're getting sterilised as we speak. At the back of the factory, the
4: drop-off zone is busy and noisy. Hundreds of used milk bottles clank as a conveyor belt carries them into a washing machine.
5: So the bottles are coming in here now so that um, it washes eight bottles at a time. It'll come through and and sterilize them from the top. They'll go around and they'll they'll go through a brush system and then they'll get a final spray at the bottom with the alkaline. This machine does about 3,500 bottles an hour. Once sterilized...
4: The bottles go back onto the conveyor belts to continue their recycling journey.
5: So they're coming straight through off the bottle washer, through a gap in the wall, into the hygienic area, and then they're coming round, they're going through a secondary bottle washer at the other end, which washes the outsides of the bottles. And then they're coming through, they're getting a pre-rinse, they're getting filled, gapped, and then packed off and straight into the chiller again. So how many
4: bottles go through the factory here in a day?
5: Oh, it's, it's probably only about 2,000 a day. And is that increasing? It is, it's increasing a lot. We probably get about 20 to 30 new new home delivery customers every week, and, and we're probably bringing on three to four new businesses, which is amazing.
4: 40 or 50 small steel kegs are piled up at the back of the bottling room.
5: So this is a company we've partnered with called Spout. So they started up in Dunedin so it's essentially like a beer keg filling system but for milk and so we've probably got maybe 12 to 15 of our commercial customers are with a, a keg system so places like cafes, we've got Hokotika Sandwich Company, the Littleton Ports on, on that, uh, Papua High School's even on that. They'll hook it into a small fridge and then just like you see down in the pub, you've got a tap and you, you can fill your milk up. Yeah. Do you do different sorts of milk? So we do, we do a whole milk which is as it comes out of the cow pasteurised and then we do, do a low fat milk which is the, the sort of one and a half, two percent fat milk and then we do like a double cream which would be I would say the highest fat cream on the market.
4: So this milk we can see being bottled right
5: now, where will it be going to? So this will go all over Christchurch from Southbridge up to Pegasus and all the businesses in between and yeah, right across Christchurch. Just like the old days? Yep, Yep. and there's also um, Free Range Eggs, we're with a Free Range Egg company as well so if if we can help them out with their sales and, and we're offering more of a service to our customers then that's just great.
4: We head to a cow paddock down the road from the factory. Yes. No! And Alex steps in a cow pad. <laughs> I don't
0: even have the gummies on.
4: We are standing in a paddock with a few hundred of the, the cows. These aren't the A2 cows, are
5: they? There will be A2 cows in here, but, okay. but this is not the not the A2 herd that, that supplies supplies Canterbury's Choice. It's, it's the adjacent farm over there which, which has got the A2 cows.
4: Yes, and who are we with here
5: uh, with my parents here, Dave and Carrie.
4: David, when did you first start farming?
6: Oh, I bought my first farm in 1984. Um, my father had a, a milk round. I grew up when I was young delivering milk and I distinctly remember going out, helping Dad, delivering delivering milk in the Brindleway area. All round there we used to do, here.
4: That would have meant some early
6: morning starts, I guess, for you. Yeah, early morning starts, yeah, it was great as a family. We used to go out and Mum would come out as well and we'd all get out and help them deliver the bottles of milk with the old Bedford milk truck and delivering the milk. And, yeah, <laughs> Hard work. Yeah, it was hard work. And then Dad went into a small dairy farm himself. Um, our farm is different. Ours is not a family farm. We started it ourselves as a small farm and we've grown it to where it is now. So it's quite amazing the way it's done a, with my family, with Alex's involvement, it's done a, a total 360 and now we're back ourselves on our own farm producing our A2 milk. Putting it into bottles. Into bottles, yeah. Your father
4: would be very impressed.
6: He would be if he was here, yes. Unfortunately, Dad passed away before Alex got started in that, but um, he did get to see get to see us with our own dairy farm, which was really good. Yes.
4: How did you and Kerry react when um, Alex suggested that you start bottling your own milk?
6: Well, that's a million-dollar question. We thought uh, university graduate uh, having his dream, let's, let's support him and let him go as you do for your children, but we didn't actually envisage it would, it would grow into what it's grown into. It's, we're really impressed and really proud of what he's done. Kerry, why do you think bottled milk is making a comeback?
3: I think just, you know, just the way the environment's
1: going now and and everyone wants to be, you know, be sustainable and looking after the environment and everything like that. So, yeah, that, that seems to be the way to go. It was funny when Alex first started, oh I've got to figure out how to pasteurise milk in the kitchen at home and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, oh, I've got to know how to pasteurise milk, this is what you do, I thought, like, okay <laughs> It
4: all started in the kitchen
1: It did indeed <laughs> so I need some really big pots mum yeah. Okay, <laughs> right, okay, what are you doing?
5: <laughs> Lots of trial and error Yeah it was, it was, but between us all we, we got it sorted and got the time temperature ratios right and had some pasteurised milk David,
4: you've got four farms and each one has its own milking platform.
6: Correct, yeah, four dairy farms, about 3,000, 3,500 cows with one dedicated A2 herd for the Canterbury's Choice project. Yeah, so the the farming side of it
5: is is White Gold Limited and then, then I started up Canterbury's Choice Limited. And you have quite a lot to do with these four dairy farms, don't you? Yes. On a day-to-day basis. Yep, yep. So I sort of oversee the managers and help them out with their feed budgeting and make sure that we're, we're hitting grass residuals, costs aren't getting too out of control, especially with how much the milk price is fluctuating over the yes. last few years. But, yeah.
4: What sort of cows
5: do you have on the farm? So we're primarily a crossbred between Frisian and Jersey. We sort of typically go for 10 parts Frisian to 6 parts Jersey. Yeah, they're not as big as some Frisians we see around, are they? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're not Holstein Frisians. Um, they're not like the old town milk supply cows that were Yeah, were very big cows. I guess uh, with the Jersey component in them, they produce a bit more cream. They do, yeah. yeah we've sort of found that's where the sweet spot is, the F10J6, and you get a bit of a smaller cow, but a really high-quality milk. So, yeah, it works out well.
4: Now, sustainability is an important part of Canterbury Choices' story. What environmental practices have
5: you put in place? Yeah, we try to definitely do our part for for the environment. We do things like we put on uh, chicken litter and and mushroom compost as as fertilisers. We've we've got about 15,000 native plants around the farm that we did a partnership with the Department of Conservation for and riparian plantings for bank conservation, things like that We've also got a bioreactor in one of our waterways that comes through from, from the mountains out to Lake Ellesmere and we're pretty proud that as dairy farmers we can say that you know water quality entering our property is, is dirtier than when it leaves our property because not many people can say that. So does that bioreactor uh, remove nitrates from the water? It does, it does yes, it's a, it's a 150 metre long strip with all these bags right through it, which, which acts as a filter that filters out nitrates through wood chips. So it was partnered with um, the with Department of Conservation, so, so they had a big team on it, as, as well as us being there as well, yes. helping out. But yeah, I, th- I think the end results were about 50% reduction in nitrates in, in the water, which is, which is phenomenal. Yes, is that something that your parents pushed yeah, my parents have worked with Doc for a while now, and so they've got a really close relationship. And we always do different trials for them, and the same with Lincoln University. We, we do a lot of trials with them as well to help out, and it sort of you know gets us to be at the front, the forefront of of the industry with the new technology that's happening. And you know, instead of finding out a few years later once everyone else is on into it, we get to be the first to know.
4: Bobby calves has been a big topic over the past
5: few years. What's your approach towards uh, the calves? Yes, yeah, so we put everything that isn't going as a replacement calf as beef so this year we did share uh, and wagyu calves and we sell those to either um, like the wagyu's went to the first light company and then they get reared up and sent over to Japan and then uh, yeah the, for the Cherolet we sell them to lifestyle block farmers and things like that Yeah. Do you have to buy in a lot of feed? No we're fully self sufficient. We've got about 530 hectares of runoff land, so we, we grow all our own maize, corn, grass silage, barley grain. So we use the barley for the for the in shed feeding. Uh, obviously, the grass silage is used when we're a bit short on the grass as a supplement, and yeah, the, the maize is the same thing, the maize corn.
4: Gosh, you've got a lot of things to think about on a daily basis, Alex. Yeah. What is the future for
5: Canterbury's choice? I'm wanting to. I'm definitely really wanting to get a larger proportion of the market in, in Christchurch. Um, I'd love to, to be able to set up franchises down in Timaru or, anyth- or you know Ashburton or something like that. You know, helping out other people and supplying the milk. But yeah, also would love to create relationships with local cheeseries and things like that to be able to supply them and really get our product out there in the market. Yeah. And what's on your agenda for the rest of the day? I've got to get a get a calf on the truck at 12 o'clock. We support IHC so we always donate a calf every year. That's getting picked up uh, shortly, so I'll I'll go and get that on the truck and that'll go into the Canterbury Sale Yard tomorrow and all proceeds go to intellectually handicapped people, which is awesome. And then I'm out in the tractor for the whole afternoon cultivating the land, ready to put the kale in for next season's winter.
2: Hey2 Milkman, Alex Irvine from Canterbury's Choice. Cosmo was also talking to his parents, David and Kerry Irvine. There are photos of Alex's milk bottling plant on the Country Life webpage. Just type Country Life RNZ into your search engine.
1: Well, that's it for another season of Country Life. But do keep listening over the summer as we'll be bringing you some of the highlights from 2023 via podcast and in our usual time slot here on RNZ National.
2: And we'll be back at the end of January with fresh stories from rural New Zealand. If you have any stories you think we should cover, or any feedback at all, email us at country at rnz.co.nz. We'd love to hear from you. Oh. Before we go, a big thank you to those of you who have shared their stories with us over the past year and to our farming contacts all around the country.
1: And also a huge thank you to those behind the scenes here at Country Life, our studio engineers Phil Benj, Mark Chesterman and William Saunders, our studio producer David, otherwise known as Ned Knowles, and my fellow story producers Cosmo Kentish-Barnes. And Leah Tebbett. From me, Sally Round.
2: And me, Duncan
1: Smith. Mere Kirihimete.
2: Happy Christmas.